going to begin this morning by doing something a bit unique. I'm going to show you a series of pictures, and I want you to interact with me and tell me whether or not you think the activity in the picture is wise or foolish. Here's the first pick right here. What do you think? Anybody in here think skydiving is a good idea? So, all right, we got some thrill seekers in here. Good. But a lot of you agree with me, right? You wouldn't be caught dead doing that. Uh, well, how about this here? How about the next thing here? Any of y'all ever been on a balance beam? This is like a whole nother, nother level on a whole nother planet right here. I would argue that, that if you ever even thought about what it might be like to do that, I would question your sanity a bit, I think. All right, next, next here, next slide. Anybody think following the instructions is a wise thing to do? Yeah. For me, it is. Very, very wise. Just ask Leslie, she'll tell you. It's always wise for me to do this. How, how about the next one? Swimming with sharks. Especially not at feeding time, right? I, I watched a video today, uh, I think ABC put it out, and, and the shark, did y'all see this? Got into the cage, broke through the cage where the diver was. Amazingly, he survived. But that's the reason you don't get in water with sharks, right? Because they're big and strong and hungry. So not, not a wise thing to do. How, how about the next one here? Students, what about this? It's wise to study. We got midterms coming up, finals coming up. It is wise to be doing that during, during that time, okay? And, and lastly, how about this? Now, I actually met a guy who, who used to do this as a profession. He was a very, very interesting guy, to say the least. But uh, something I wouldn't do, and I'm sure you wouldn't either. We, we encounter wisdom and, and folly on a daily basis, don't we? And Scripture has a lot to say about wisdom and has quite a bit to say about foolishness. And oftentimes there are comparisons to be made between the two. We see this throughout the book of Proverbs. At times in the narratives we read in the Scriptures, at times there are comparisons and contrasts to be made between wise and, and foolish people. I think of Cain and Abel and, and also Seth. The other brother as well. You've got godly brothers and then you've got the wicked Cain in Genesis 4. Noah and the rest of mankind. Enough said right there, right? Abraham and Lot. Moses and Aaron. While Moses is on Sinai, you remember that? Moses is receiving the law and Aaron is leading people in breaking the laws of God, leading them in idolatry. Joshua and Caleb and the rest of the Jewish people in the wilderness. Remember that? Joshua and Caleb wanted to take the land. They wanted to take God at his word, take the land no matter what, but the others disagreed. King Saul and King David. King Saul was the, the people's king, and he was a wicked king, and King David was the one appointed by God, chosen by God, a man after God's own heart. Eli and Samuel, remember that story? Eli was the, was the foolish priest with the wicked sons. And Samuel is the one that God chooses to use in a very, very difficult time in his people's history. The prophets of God and the people of God all throughout 
Elijah and Ahab, you remember that story? Wise and foolish. The disciples, tax collectors and sinners who followed Jesus and the religious leaders in the Gospels. Wise and foolish. Two criminals on the cross. There's one that, that, that trusted in him and the other did not. Remember in Acts, we talked about Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira. You remember that? Barnabas sold his land and he gave everything to the apostles to give out as they saw the need. Ananias and Sapphira made it seem like they gave everything, but they kept some back for themselves. But they wanted the praise for giving everything and they paid the price for that. Wise and foolish. We could go on and on. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to Esther chapter 5. We are continuing our series through Esther, and we are focusing on the providence of God in this story. We've been talking about the fact that God seems absent from this story, doesn't he? He's he's never mentioned. No one's praying. No prophets show up. No miracles are being done. We've been talking about the fact that though that's the case, though, God is at work in the shadows in this story through providence, in and through people, systems, and circumstances that he has allowed for, that he has put into place. And today, we are going to see God work through wisdom and through foolishness. He can and does allow for both and works through both. Today, we're going to talk about the providence of God through a wise Persian queen and a foolish Persian leader. Now, before we get into this story, let me bring those of you up to speed. For those of you who have been out, I'll take just a moment to do this. We're looking at the the book of Esther, which covers events that took place in the mid-400s B.C. during the time of Xerxes, or in some of your Bibles it says Ahasuerus. He was in power in the Persian Empire at this time. He had more power than anyone on the earth. And in chapter 1 of this book, we're told that he decides to show how powerful and impressive he is by having a party for six months. And he invites the political and military leaders to come from all the nations all over to come to his palace in Susa, which is modern-day Iran, and they let loose. They, They party. For six months, it's, it's an open buffet of the finest foods. It's, it's, it's all you can drink from the royal wine. It's an open bar. The king also opened it up to those great and small throughout the, the, the region where he was, and they came for, for seven days, and, and they came into the, the courtyard of the, of the palace, and they partied for a week. And, and one reason he's doing this is to show the political and military leaders, the nations, the people around him, how great he is. And we also learn from the extra biblical historical sources that he wanted to go to war with Greece as well. So he's probably trying to show everyone that he has resources to go to war. So he's gathering support as well. And we're told toward the end of this party, the king gets really drunk and starts making bad 
decisions. He decides to show all the rest of the guys at the party how great he is by having his beautiful Queen Vashti paraded before this drunken, gluttonous, immoral group of guys just so they can gawk at her and lust after her. And so they'll then look at the king and how beautiful his queen is and they'll, they'll love him all the more. So he says, he sends for his eunuchs to go get Vashti as queen, and she says no. She's not having it. And the king's in a jam because he's trying to show all these guys how great he is, and he's been dissed by his queen in public. Well, he seeks counsel on what to do, and the counselors say, you got to get rid of her. Since she refused to come into your presence when you called for her, you should say she is never allowed to be in your presence ever again let a royal order be written and let her be removed and the the king agreed to it and the queen is removed and then in chapter two four years has passed the queen is gone the Persians have fought a war we learned that from the extra biblical historical sources and they did not win against the Greeks. So chapter 2 begins with this defeated king without a queen. He's probably moping around the castle and he seeks counsel from some young foolish guys on what to do and they say, why don't you have the leaders in the provinces throughout the empire gather up all the most beautiful young virgins, bring them to your harem, your palace in Susa, let them get dolled up and compete for a chance at being the queen. And the king likes that idea and, and that's when we're introduced to two of our main characters in this story, two Jewish exiles living in, in Persia, in this foreign Persian land named Mordecai and Esther. They were cousins, but Esther, who lost both her father and mother, was also the adopted daughter of the older Mordecai. And in chapter 2, we're told that Esther is one of the ones chosen to compete at a chance at being the queen. And we're told in Esther chapter 2, verse 17, that the king loved Esther more than all the women. She becomes his favorite, and she becomes the queen. And we're told that Mordecai had a position at the king's gate, which was the place where official business was handled and laws were made and justice was given. And we learn at the end of Esther chapter 2 that Mordecai uses his position and his connection with the queen, because she's his adopted daughter, to save the king's life. Mordecai, while at the king's gate, he discovers a plot by eunuchs to assassinate the king. And so he discovers that plot. He lets Esther know. She, in turn, lets the king know. These men are captured. They're put to death. The king's life is spared. And it's recorded in the official records that Mordecai was the one who saved the king's life. In chapter 3, we learn five more years has passed since the events of chapter 2. Nine years have passed since the events of chapter 1. And we learn that the king is going to promote someone to a position that is the second most powerful position in the Persian Empire. Now, you'd think it'd be Mordecai, right? 
Because if it were not for Mordecai, the king would not be alive. But he doesn't promote Mordecai. He passes over Mordecai, and he promotes Haman. And we talked about Haman. Haman was an Agagite, and we explained that the Agagites were longtime enemies of the Jews. Their feud went all the way back to two twin brothers in Genesis, Jacob and Esau. Haman is a wicked guy, and he, like Ahasuerus or Xerxes, he, lo- he loved power and glory and public recognition and he receives it from most everyone everywhere he goes everyone except for Mordecai and this is not something Mordecai just did once he refused to bow and show Haman respect over and over again and when asked why he says because I'm a Jew and we said he might have had religious reasons for not bowing but also we talked about how much the Agagites hated the Jews the feelings were mutual So he probably didn't want to bow before Haman because he's a sworn enemy of theirs. So what does Haman do? Well, he says, okay, you won't bow. I'm not only going to kill you, Mordecai, but I'm going to kill all your people as well. One guy doesn't bow, all the Jews are going to die. Haman is the first Hitler, right? And he he brought this before the king, and Haman manipulates him into giving his stamp of approval approval his his signet ring and this decree is signed sealed sent out all throughout the persian empire and then xerxes and haman sit down and have cocktails well when this decree gets to mordecai he decides to do something about it he emerges from the shadows and shows openly how upset he is with this decree he tore his clothes he put on sackcloth and sat in ashes and 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 put ashes on and he went out into the city and he he cried out with a loud and bitter cry he he mourned publicly he went all the way to the king's gate And when Esther hears about it, she sends him some appropriate clothes, hoping that Mordecai will go back into the shadows because he's in danger doing what he's doing. Mordecai refuses. Then they begin to dialogue back and forth through Esther's eunuchs. And Mordecai tells Esther what has happened, and he basically says, you got to do something. And at first, Esther's like, what can I do? If I go before the king unannounced, I could lose my life because the king had a rule in that day that if you went in uninvited while he was sitting up on his throne and he did not pardon you, he did not allow you to come in, you could be put to death. That went for queens, military leaders, everyone. So Esther says, I could lose my life. And Mordecai responds with, you could lose your life if you do nothing because you are a Jew. And all the Jews in the empire have been condemned to die. And we, we see here how much Mordecai has changed, right? He is, he is being bold, telling the queen what she needs to do at the end of Esther 4. He also displays great faith. He says, if you do nothing, we will still be spared. Relief will come from another place. But who knows whether or not you have become queen for just this reason, to be the savior for your people. And when Mordecai said that, we said last week, something clicks in Esther. She begins to make a turn for the better. She gets her focus off of what she wants and her focus on what God wants. And she goes from saying, I could lose my life if I go before the the king to saying, I will go before the king for my people. And if I perish, I perish. Well, today we're going to look at 
Esther in chapter 5, and we're going to see Esther before the king. We're also going to look at Haman with the king and queen and with his friends. And and this morning we are going to do a, a case study of these two main characters in our story, Haman and Esther. And, and we are going to look at, we're going to see the, the wisdom of Esther when she goes before king the, the king Xerxes. And we're also going to look at the foolishness of Haman as well as we look at him with the king and queen and with his friends okay god is going to allow for he's going to use both but we're going to see both here and and see him work through both notice first the wisdom of esther we're going to look at the wisdom of esther first look at verse one on the third day esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. Let's stop there for just a minute. Notice what Esther does before even entering in to the king's presence. She, she dresses appropriately. She wears royal robes, which I believe... She did this to remind the king that she is different from other uninvited guests. She is his queen. I believe there's a reason for her to dress in that way, put on the royal robes. But she also stands where she should, which is a sign of respect for her husband as her king. So she reminds him of her status by the, by the way in which she's dressed, but, but where she's standing is she's showing respect for him. She's being extremely wise here. She's doing the right thing, get this, in the right way. And how does the king respond? Look at verse 2. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. That's what they did when they were, when they were summoned in, invited in. And the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to half of my kingdom. She, she's invited in, notice, and she has shown great favor. Again, believers, we see God is at work here, right? Notice in verse 3. He's given her the green light. He says, what is it you want? Ask anything, it shall be given to you. Now, how would you respond here if you were in Esther's sandals? Some of us would get right to it, right? I want Haman's head. I want him dead. I want him dead tonight. Is that what Esther says? Look at verse 4. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Now, how many of y'all read that and you said, What? She is given the green light to ask anything she wants. And she asks if she can throw the king and Haman a party. She asks if she can cook for him and Haman, have a feast for them. These two men who just agreed to annihilate her entire race of people and then sit down and have drinks afterwards. What's going on here? Well, she's being patient. She's being wise. She's thought this through. She's not getting ahead of herself. Many of us 
We don't do that, do we? How many, how many of you, when you have something to say, you just say it? You let your emotions get the better of you. You say something that may need to be said, but you say it at the wrong time and in the wrong way. Anybody's toes sore? I think we've all done that at one time or another, right? There is almost always wisdom in waiting and praying about doing or saying the right thing in the right way. That's wise. Esther has thought this through. Instead of just blurting out, I'm a Jew and Haman's Hitler, she's thought of the right way, I believe, to make this known. She is earning the king's trust, keeping Haman's focus on his relationship with the king and the queen for the moment and off wanting to kill Mordecai and the rest of the Jews. Believers, there's great application to be made here by us. Think before you speak. Very, very simple. You know why we're told that over and over again, by the way? Because we don't do it. When you read the book of Proverbs, what you should take away from that is, I'm a fool. Because we don't often do what we're told to do in the book of Proverbs. Very, very important that God tells us this over and over again. There's, there's great application. Think before you speak. Wait before you act. Though you may be right in what you want to say and do, it's good, it's wise to do the right thing at the right time, in the right way, with the right motive, or you could end up with the wrong result. I know of people who have stood for very good things, but they have done it in a foolish way, and they end up out of a job or on the outside of a ministry. It happens over and over again. Esther does the right thing in the right way. And how does the king respond? Look at verse 5. Then the king said, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the, the, the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. They loved to feast and party, and Esther knew that. It's wise of her. She knows that. She plays on that. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you, and what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. So they've had a wonderful meal. They've been drinking probably the royal wine once again. Xerxes is happy, and he asks, What do you want? What is your wish? Ask anything, and it'll be granted to you. And what does Esther say? Does she say, I'm a Jew, Haman's Hitler, kill him right now, kill him tonight? Is that what she says? Look at verse 7. She already had an answer waiting. She didn't hesitate. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. So Esther invites Xerxes and Haman to another feast that she is going to prepare. She basically says, I want to prepare another meal before I make this request known. Once again, she's not rushing in to what she needs to do. She's not making an emotional decision. She's not giving an emotional response. She, I believe, is handling this situation in a wise and godly way. I believe she's showing some of the fruit of the Spirit here. You're going to read about the fruit of the Spirit this week in your scripture reading and talk about it in your discussion through your study guides, but I believe she's showing fruits of the Spirit here. Peace. Patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Very, very 
wise. Esther, as we saw last week, she has made a turn. She is making progress. She is being a great representative here for God's people and the way she's handling this situation. And again, we we learn a lot from Esther about how we should respond, how we should go about doing the right things. Esther has changed in this story. What about you? What about you? Has your story changed? Have you made a turn? Are you making progress for God? In this story, Esther is given two names. Esther is her Persian name. Hadassah is her Jewish name. And at the first of this story, all we have is Esther. A woman not representing God, hiding in the shadows, living like the world, intermixed with the pagan Persian people. People don't even know she's Jewish by the way in which she lives. She's not living for God. And at the end of this book, we see Hadassah emerge, a child of God, a bold, wise, godly representative used by God for the sake of his people. Are you an Esther or are you a Hadassah in your story? Are you living like the world, not for God? Going at life on your own, apart from and opposed to Him? Are you, or, or are you living your lives surrendered to Him? Are you trusting in His Son, Jesus, alone for your salvation? Are you being a bold representative for God, living for His glory? Are you His witness? Are you serving His people in love? Listen, if not, here's the great news about Esther's story. We learn from this story, from this book, that change is possible. God can and does do that work in us. The question you need to ask yourself today is whether or not you're willing to give your life up and over to Him if you have not. Whether or not you're trusting in His Son alone for your salvation. Will you do that? Will you forsake your sin, trust in his son alone for salvation? I pray you would today. So that's the wisdom of Esther. Now let's focus on the foolishness of Haman. Though Esther was wise, Haman was a fool. Look at verse 9. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. Boy, Haman loved him some Haman, didn't he? He loved glory, power, recognition, control. He idolized his status and his success and and his name and his public recognition and honor. Haman was a self-centered, self-idolizing, self-consumed, self-honoring fool. He was. Why was he happy? Well, he's going to have a second dinner with the king and queen of Persia. I mean, they love him so much, they cannot even spend a night away from him. That's that's the way he's thinking. He's a top dog. He's a a big deal. Haman the Great. Boy, I bet it was tough to even get his head through the door after that, right? He's on cloud nine, leaving the palace, and then look at what happens. This is so great. Verse nine. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, uh uh-oh, that he neither rose nor trembled before him. He was filled with wrath against Mordecai. There's Mordecai once again just raining on Haman's parade, right? Haman's beaming. 
until he gets to the king's gate, he sees Mordecai. Mordecai barely even acknowledges his presence. This sets Haman off. He's thinking, who is this guy? How dare Mordecai? Does he not know who I am? He should be kissing my feet. He should be worshiping the ground I walk on. Now, now think about this. Haman should be happy, right? He should be thrilled. Everything's going his way. The only negative in Haman's life is this nobody at the king's gate who doesn't give him the time of day, and he can't let that go. He can't let it go. He's miserable. We said earlier in this series that seeking self-glory ends in misery because, one, that's settling for far less than what God intends and what he's created us for. You're going to learn that in your study guide this week. God has created us to live for him and, and his glory and his great kingdom, not the little bitty tiny kingdom of self. But it also ends in misery because, get this, the smallest of things ruins it. If self-glory is what you idolize, everyone who does not acknowledge your greatness becomes your greatest enemy. And there are always people like that. Have you ever heard it said that we often demonize that which is said against what we idolize? So true. And it ends in misery. That's what we have here with Haman. And, and notice Haman keeps things under control for a time. Look at verse 10. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. So, when Haman has this encounter, let's, rewind, let's uh, rewind a little bit. When he has this encounter with Mordecai, he doesn't do anything to him right away in that moment because he has a desire that outweighs his desire to punish Mordecai. And that was to get home and tell his friends and family how great he is. And also we'll find in a moment to get wicked counsel, foolish counsel from them as well on how to deal with, with Mordecai. But Haman would not have been a fun friend to have. He really wouldn't. I mean, he gathered everybody together and just bragged on himself. He called in his best friends and family, and, and he says, let me tell you about my new best friends, the king and the queen of Persia. And he also bragged about how rich he was, the number of sons he had, all the promotions he had received, how powerful he was. Wouldn't you just love to be a friend of Haman's, just sit around all day and hear about how great Haman is? And you all have friends like that? pretty tough to be around right so Haman bypasses Mordecai for just a moment and one of the reasons why is because he wanted to get foolish counsel from his friends on how to deal with him but also he didn't view Mordecai as being a threat in that moment we're going to learn next week that Haman shouldn't have underestimated Mordecai he should have dealt with him while he had the chance but he didn't he's so blinded by his desire for his own glory and he's also we're going to see blinded by his hatred of Mordecai as well and that leads to his downfall 
Look at verses 13 through 14. Haman says this. Yet all this is worth nothing to me. He says, all this glory, these promotions, my friends in high places, all of this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. He can't stand it that Mordecai is there day in and day out. Verse 14. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, let a gallows 50 cubits high be made. And in the morning... Tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. Poor, poor, foolish counsel. That's another reason why Haman is a fool. Because we're told the idea pleased Haman. Of course it did. And he had the gallows made. So Haman is having the best day ever. He's the second most powerful man on earth. He is very, very rich. He is friends with the the king and queen. And he gathers his friends in and they just listen to him brag on how great he is. And he's got a supportive wife, plenty of sons to continue his great legacy. He's going to dine with the king and queen privately once again. And he says, all of this is nothing to me as long as Mordecai remains alive. He is blinded by his great desire for glory and his hatred of Mordecai who won't give it. All he wanted was for Mordecai to die. Of all the things going right, it's Mordecai that he can't stop thinking about. Mordecai exposes Haman's idol, doesn't he? What's Haman's idol? It's himself. It's it's himself, it's his power, it's his prestige. And because Mordecai refused to bow and show respect to him, All he can think about is putting an end to Mordecai. Notice his wife and friends, they come up with a plan. They say, build a gallows that is 50 cubits high. That is 75 feet in the air. Probably there were no gallows built that were higher than that in that day. They wanted the world to witness the death of Mordecai. They said, let him be hanged upon it. Now, don't think about gallows and hanging like the Old West where you got the hangman's noose and the, and the, and the platform and the trap door. That was, that was not what was going on here. In this day, they would fasten criminals to a tree or a high pole. This is an early form of crucifixion. Many think the Romans invented crucifixion. They did not. They perfected it. They made it more shameful and, and more painful. But they were doing that in this day. So they want Mordecai to hang. They wanted to hoist him way up so that the world would know, do not mess with Haman. And Haman loved the idea, and he had the gallows made. Haman was blinded by his own greatness, his desire for glory, his hatred toward Mordecai, and he seeks foolish counsel. And we're going to learn next week that this all leads to his downfall. Haman was foolish he thought he was untouchable probably thought he was just going to live on forever in a glorious state little did he know that his days were numbered little did he know that god is the one in control in this story and little did he know that god was going to use a lowly nobody named mordecai and a jew that he did not know was a jew named esther to bring about his downfall to ruin haman We're going to see that next week. Haman's story is tragic. 
Naturally, with a, a tragic story of a wicked man, it, it, in the scriptures it contrasts nicely to the glorious story of King Jesus. Get this. While Haman lived for his glory, Jesus lived his earthly life to the glory of God the Father. While Haman made God's people his enemy, Jesus came to make his enemies friends. Haman would not forgive one man for one thing. Jesus will forgive anyone for anything if they humbly place their faith alone and trust alone in him alone. Haman sought to hang Mordecai for sinning against him, but Jesus came to hang for us, though we sinned against him, so that we can be forgiven of that sin against him. Haman sought to puff up his own identity through his own works, but in Jesus, we receive a new identity through his person and work. And get this, you can receive a new identity today if you would forsake your sin and give your life up and over to Jesus. If you have not, I pray today you would make a turn like, like Esther, like, like Mordecai do in this story. I pray that God would, would do a work, a great work in your heart and life and you would respond to that great work by turning from your sin and giving your life up and over to Jesus. If you're here and your story has not changed, you're not trusting in Christ, I pray you would today and be saved. Let's pray.